So Joshua chapter five, the title that I've given this message is Encountering God on the Eve of Breakthrough. Um, it is wonderful for Joe and I to be back in uh, Stellenbosch with you guys. We love this church, even though Joe's just immediately leaving. <laughs> if you're watching online, so you miss, miss all these little inferences, you should be here in person, it's much better. Um, but we love the friendship, we love the relationship. Um, uh, I, like some of you, were, I've only kind of caught up with this latest development and news and this um, moment had been planned before all of that was announced, obviously. Uh, I'm not the guy coming in, so just, to, just in case some of you are thinking, no, this was just actually set up a while back, so. But unrelated to that news, this message comes and um, I want to talk about discerning the new season with Joshua and the, tra uh, the challenge of taking Jericho before the people. They had to discern that they were coming into a new season. So the passage that we're going to read together comes at a critical time in Israel's history. Moses, you remember, by various signs and wonders and miracles had led a nation of slaves out of Egypt. But of course they were fearful when it came to the next phase, entering the promised land. That's what they're about to do. Of the 12 spies who were sent to spy out this promised land before the people went in, only Joshua and Caleb came back saying, we can do this, God is with us. The others said, this is totally unrealistic. It's way too risky. And Joshua and Caleb said, don't listen to them, God is with us. But tragically, as often happens, the majority view prevailed. And as a result of that, the people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. That's a pretty big slowdown of the purposes of God. And Moses, in obvious old age, dies. And then Joshua, who appears now to take the leadership, is now in his 80s. He's probably about 85. And he leads the people forward into this next phase. The Joshua generation is a geriatric generation. It's not a youth movement. We always think, oh, you know, Joshua must have been this young, you know, dynamic, young, alpha male type. No, not at all. He was well into his 80s. Incidentally, and there are not many people who look like they're anywhere near 80 here. I am probably the oldest person in this room. Wow, I always used to be the youngest person in the room. There's, there's no... <laughs> There's no such thing as retirement in the kingdom of God. There's no such thing as retirement in the kingdom of God. Never say to yourself, oh, well, my time of effective service has come to a close. I'll let the young people. It's good to see the young people enjoying church. No, we need the perspective of age and experience. Moses, you remember, of course, had been a young dynamic leader when he felt the call to deliver 
his people out of slavery, but he acted recklessly in his youthfulness, killing an Egyptian man, thinking that he was doing the work of God, but actually destroying stuff. And God took him aside and actually made him wait decades before fulfilling that promise, before using him. And even after getting them out of Egypt, they still wandered, <clears throat> as I've said, for 40 years because of unbelief. Application point, maybe God is not in as much of a hurry as we are to get things done. Well, anyway, the aged Joshua leads the people across the Jordan, which if you remember, parts, and they set up 12 stones as a memorial to God's miraculous deliverance. And now they are in the land, facing their first major challenge, which is Jericho. So let's read from Joshua chapter five, and we'll pick it up at verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. Pause, very significant. What's significant about that? They eat, they eat. For some of them, this is the first time they've ever eaten anything except manna. This is a massive moment. They eat that day. I, I don't know if it's possible, I didn't kind of go back and read, but it's possible maybe that some of the youngsters could remember their parents stuffing their faces with quail until they vomited. If you know the Old Testament, you'll know the story. But most of them had never eaten anything else ever. Verse 12, and the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. God is able to provide for his people when they need it until he provides something else. A few, uh, sorry, um, for, of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan from that year. Now, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy and Joshua did so now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel none went out and none came in and the Lord said to Joshua see I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the mighty men of valor and you shall march around the city and then he gives them the instructions for them marching around for six days and then on the seventh day to blow the trumpets okay what happens? Joshua 
experiences God. There's this sudden visitation, unexpected, but real. He's maybe probably going out to assess the military challenge that faces the people. I mean, the, these people are not soldiers, remember. They're, they're a, a large nomadic tribe with lots of cattle, the wives, the children. This isn't like a, an army that is approaching Jericho. And the, this challenge is as big as any that the people of Israel have faced up until that point. And Joshua has an unexpected encounter with God. How very like the Bible, of course, this is. Suddenly, God breaks in. Suddenly, we encounter God in power. Suddenly, we experience interventions of God's faithfulness and grace. We remember that before going to Pharaoh, Moses encountered God, didn't he? Remember? The burning bush? He encountered God as a God of miracles. The bush burned, but it wasn't burned up. And then he had to, what was it? He had to throw down his stick and it became a snake. And then he had to grab the end of it and it became a stick again. And then he said, put your hand into the, and then oh, it was leprous. And then whoo, in again and ah, it's, it's okay. That wouldn't work being transcribed, would it? But you know, if you know the story, you know what I'm saying. He encountered God as a worker of miracles. As a worker of miracles, God appeared to Moses. Why? Because it was primarily through miracles and signs and wonders that the people would come out of Egypt. God has a visitation for you individually. What's before you? What's ahead of you? It's often God's way. Sudden visitations of God precede breakthroughs in salvation history. It's the story of every revival that God suddenly reveals himself or touches and changes individuals before further breakthrough is yet to happen. So what's happening with Joshua? Joshua is facing Jericho and he has this unexpected, like, whoa, who is this character now who suddenly appears? What's he seeing? Is this a vision? Maybe something like a, a hologram or something, or is it something that's happening in Joshua's own mind? The text doesn't seem to suggest that. It seems to be a real person actually appearing who then disappears again. Well, I've got three suggestions for who this is. First suggestion, that it was Christ. Second, that it was personal. And third, that this was powerful. Firstly then, I'm suggesting this was Christ. Verse 14, as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Joshua falls on his face to the earth, says, and worshipped him, and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you, have sta where you are standing is holy. I have now come as commander. 
Joshua had been with Moses and seen God working as a miracle worker, but now the Lord is coming to Joshua in a different way. Not that the miracles are emptied, not at all, but he encounters God as a, a, it's military help that he needs, and he encounters this man as a warrior. And take your sandals off of your feet recalls, doesn't it, Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. You remember that? It's almost the same kind of thing. It's the same God revealing himself in new ways. Same character, same being, same person, same purpose. It recalls the God who has worked in history working again, but this time in Joshua's life for Joshua. It's not just God did this in Moses' day, in a certain way for Moses, so therefore I have faith to act now. It's, no, actually, God is now working for me now in the need that I have right now, and I have faith to move forward. Hallelujah. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever, says the Lord. So the question for Joshua is, that are you, are you for me, or are you for them? Who are you? And the response is no. Uh, some of the translations say neither, and that's also typical. Why? Because the battle is the Lord's and not yours. Not yours. Now, when we face challenges, the big stuff, <laughs> we think it's ours. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. It's, it, this is mission. Joshua must have thought, Moses fought his battles, and, and the Lord worked wonderfully. This is now my battle, and I need to somehow make it work or make it happen or ask God. Joseph, um, Moses has his battles. This, the Jericho issue, is my issue. This is my battle, and he meets the Lord, and the Lord says, no, the battle is mine. Ultimately, the mission is the Lord's. It's not yours, and it's not mine. The harvest is the Lord's. He's the Lord of the harvest, hallelujah. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. Now go into all the world and make disciples. It's his commission to us. We see it in a kind of a manifesto format in 2 Corinthians 5 when Paul says God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is his purpose. He is reconciling the world to himself through Christ. That's the purpose of God through all history. From the very beginning, when he promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, all the way right through to the very end, when the bride and the bridegroom are joined together. Hallelujah. So Joshua is told, no, I'm the commander of this. He encounters God as warrior. I'm the commander of this. This struggle is my struggle. This challenge is my challenge. The battle is the Lord's. And by the way, 
there's no doubt that God is on Joshua's side because the next thing, the very next thing as we read, that he says to him is, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. But surely it's not possible for this mysterious man with the sword to be Jesus. How can the Jesus of the New Testament appear in the Old Testament? How's that even possible? Well, first of all, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy, which is a good baseline when you're dealing with the God of, the, of, of Scripture. But let me look at some possibilities. It can't be an ordinary man for the following reasons. Firstly, Joshua knows, and everything we know about Joshua would corroborate this, he knows that he's not to worship anyone but God. It is extremely unlikely that Joshua would fall down, worship a man, and the man would receive the worship. Second, the only man who could describe himself as the commander would have been Joshua himself. There's no way that, I mean, Joshua would never submit to someone just turning up and saying, okay, I'm in charge. You know, that's not likely, is it? Joshua, why are we changing tactics? What's the, well, I met this bloke in the desert, you know, and he just said, no, I'm in charge. That's unlikely. Third, he would never have adopted such a daft, non-military strategy to overthrow a walled city. Basically, silently march around the city and then just watch the walls fall down all by themselves. I mean, he's not likely to, to adopt that strategy, especially because, well, who told you to do that? Well, this bloke just turned up out of the blue, and then he left. He's not even going to march with us. Much more likely that that would be counterintelligence from Jericho. Okay, says a little meeting inside Jericho. You know, we've got these Israelites and they, uh, they're coming and uh, we've heard like they got out of Egypt, so something's going on there. This is the idea. They believe in God, so let's get the tallest guy and why don't you go out and pretend to be God, we'll give you a really big sword, pretend to be God and then get them to march around the city close enough so that we can shoot at them with arrows um, and not just once, six days, so that we can pick off absolutely everybody. It's much more likely to be a counterintelligence strategy, naturally speaking. It's not an ordinary man. Secondly, it can't be an angel. Can it really be an angel? Because good Every good angel resists worship in the Bible. If you've read your Bible, which you should, you should read your Bible cover to cover. You should be, if you've been a Christian any length of time, if you've just become a Christian two weeks ago, you should have begun the great, grand, glorious project of reading through the whole of your Bible. You might not start in Genesis and work through it that way. You've got a contents page. You can pick out the books and then tick off the ones that you finished. But if you're a Christian, you need to know that you've read the whole thing. And if you haven't read the, the whole thing, get on with it. But one of the things you'll pick up is basically how to evaluate other passages of Scripture. There's no way an angel would receive worship. 
Every single time when someone falls down, no, no, we're servants of God just like you are. You get up, you only worship God. If it was an angel, the angel would have said that. Well, it could have been a bad angel, (coughs) an evil spirit. But evil spirits (coughs) generally do not encourage the people of God to fulfill the purposes of God in their generation. So I don't think it's a man. I don't think it's an angel. But we do have moments in the Old Testament that where what seems to be happening are what we might call pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. This appearance is one of them. Another, for example, is in Daniel chapter 3, where three Jewish men are thrown into a blazing furnace by Nebuchadnezzar because they refuse to worship his image. And then Nebuchadnezzar, once the three are thrown in, he shocked and he shouts, look, I see four men walking around in the fire. Four men, not three. Unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. That's what the non-Christian Nebuchadnezzar. And then, of course, we have numerous references to Christ in the Old Testament. And that's one of the joys of reading through the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms and the prophets, because Christ is everywhere. And um, Peter, for example, asserts that King David knew Christ personally. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says in Acts chapter 2, God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, Jesus, David says of him, this him who was put to death, but who was raised from the dead because it was impossible for him to be held by its power, David says of him, I saw the Lord continually before me, for he is at my right hand that I will not be shaken. David knew Christ. We know Jesus talked about Abraham. Abraham knew Christ. So Christ is all over the Old Testament, of course. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are throughout the whole of Scripture. Let me give you one example. Proverbs 30, verses 2 to 4. Verses that don't generally appear on T-shirts or on bumper stickers or on posters or fridge magnets. I am certainly more stupid than any man. Don't take this out of context and make a meme out of it, okay? I'm just... And I do not have the... And don't, if you're a wife... Say, oh, I was reading my Bible this morning and I, uh, just a verse just, just jumped out of me and it reminded me of you. Really? Uh, where was it? I was in the book of Proverbs. Oh, the wisdom book. Yes, of course. Of course you may have. And you may have seen a verse there that reminded you of me. No, I am certainly more stupid than any man and I do not have the understanding of a man, nor have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One who has ascended into heaven and descended. Does that ring any bells? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. You ever noticed those verses before? Right at the end of the book of wisdom. Hallelujah. So that's my assertion that it was Christ. Secondly, it was, is that clock correct by the way? We don't know. We've never looked at it before. You didn't even know there was a clock there. Okay, it's fine. <laughs> Secondly, it was, it was personal. This experience was intensely personal. At a critical time, it, 
Joshua has a personal encounter with the Lord. What's your experience of Christ? What's your experience of Christ? Surely we do not want to kind of project a Christianity that is just made up of principles and processes, all of which are helpful, but lacking this core fundamental reality of an encounter with Jesus Christ. Well, what kind of Christianity are we building if it's not one that has experiences of God and adventures with God absolutely at the core of it, at the heart of it? Throughout the Bible and church history, the people of God have had extraordinary encounters with him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Have you? I mean, our challenges are great as well. We're not trying to take Jericho. We don't have an old covenant uh, ministry of judgment. We've got a new covenant ministry of reconciliation, as though God was appealing to us to be reconciled to him. But what does it take to change a situation or a nation or a city? I'm going to give you three short examples from church history from three different centuries of personal encounters that individuals had that led to amazing breakthroughs where not only hundreds but even thousands were impacted by the gospel. We'll do the 18th century, the 19th century, and the 20th century in about 15 minutes. It is possible. First of all then, John Wesley. John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, Howell Harris, the others, speaking about a powerful prayer meeting that they'd had on January the 1st, 1739, John Wesley wrote, about three in the morning, they're praying through the night, about three in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy, and many fell to the ground. As soon as we were recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. What followed from 1739 for a couple of decades was what's come to be known as the Great Awakening. Just thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands came to Christ in incredible ways. The gospel just spread like shockwaves right across the English-speaking world. And actually, even today, I know we, we, we look at Methodism perhaps in a different way now than was, it was looked at in the 19th century, even just two centuries ago. But one of the reasons why there are little Methodist chapels and great Methodist-type cathedral-like buildings all over the world is because the power of God was experienced by a few and then just burst so that it wasn't just a few experiencing God. Having personal encounters with God, it was multitudes. Second, Charles Finney in the 19th century. Finney was a young lawyer. This is a kind of pricey version of his story um, from his journals. He was a young lawyer and he describes the end of a working day while he was still working in a law firm as I closed the door and turned around, he's in America by the way, my heart seemed to be liquid within me. 
all my feelings seemed to rise and flow out, and the utterance of my heart was, I want to pour my whole soul out to God. I'm, not gonna, I'm trying not to apply all this all along, but if you feel an impulse to pray, follow that impulse. If, you, if there's a point where you feel, I need to turn aside, then jolly well stop you know, watching reels on Instagram or whatever you're watching on Netflix. If you, if you feel a, a, a pull, a tug, a kind of spiritual hunger, a, a, a kind of the, the relish of spiritual fulfillment that draws you towards prayer. Get, a, get away from whatever you're doing and pray and seek God. Anyway, um, as my mind became calm, I returned to the front office and as I turned and was about to take a seat by the fire, I received a mighty baptism of the Holy Ghost. Without any expectation of it, without ever having the thought in my mind that there was any such thing for me, without any recollection that I had ever heard the thing mentioned by any person in the world, at a moment entirely unexpected by me, the Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through and through me. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves and waves of liquid love, for I could not express it in any other way. And yet, it did not seem like water, but rather as the breath of God. I can recollect distinctly that it seemed to fan me like immense wings, and it seemed to me as these waves passed over me that they literally moved my hair like a passing breeze. No words can express the wonderful love that was shed abroad in my heart. It seems to me that I should burst. I, I wept aloud with joy and love, and I do not know, but I should say I literally bellowed out the unutterable gushings of my heart. These waves came over me and over me and over me, one after the other, until I recollect I cried out, I shall die if these waves continue to pass over me. I said, Lord, I cannot bear anymore. How long I continued in this state, I, I do not know. But it was late in the evening when a member of my choir came to see me. He was a member of the church. He found me in this state of loud weeping, and he said, Mr. Finney, what ails you? I, I could make him no answer for some time, and he then said, Are you in pain? I gathered myself up as best as I could, and I replied, No but I'm so happy that I cannot live. He left the office and in a few minutes returned with one of the elders of the church. <laughs> now, Charles Finney has been slandered pretty effectively by reformed theologians because he rejected uh, the doctrine of election and, and, he, and he did so petulantly, which Wesley actually did also. But there's no doubt about it that Finney was one of the great evangelists of the 19th century. And thousands and thousands of people came to Christ out of this experience. And others were raised up to preach the gospel. Last one. Joshua meets this commander, takes Jericho. You need an encounter with God in order to move across and into and beyond the challenge 
that you're facing. William Seymour, 20th century, February 1906, just 100 odd years ago now. William Seymour moved to Los Angeles to take up the leadership of a small church, a kind of Methodist holiness church. He preached on Acts 2 verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. Now there's no uh, question about tongues with Finney's experience. Finney was filled with the Holy Spirit as far as we know and genuinely baptized in the Holy Spirit but as far as we know didn't speak in tongues. The tongues issue kind of burst into the scene. I mean it obviously in Acts chapter 2, but in Seymour's story as well. He hadn't spoken in tongues. He just, had, he just preached on that verse, uh, but the leaders didn't like it, and they rejected the message, and after a few more services, they put a great big padlock on the door and said, no thanks. We, we like, you know, you're keen, you're very enthusiastic. No. <laughs> so he began a prayer meeting, and then something extraordinary happened in the prayer meeting. A guy called Edward Lee, who was a janitor, he asked for prayer for healing. He had some condition, and he was amazingly healed. He was completely healed. And then he asked for this filling of the Holy Spirit. And they prayed for him, and immediately he began speaking loudly in tongues. Now, together, he and Seymour walked to the house where their new church meeting was about to begin, and again, Seymour preached from Acts chapter two, but he never finished the message. How many of you read anything by Richard Foster? Celebration of Discipline, Prayer, Money, Sex, and Power. Oh, these are great books. You need to read them. Richard Foster. Uh, he writes, Lee lifted his hands, opened his mouth, and electrified everyone with a torrent of glossolalia. Glossolalia, basically the Greek transliteration. Uh, which we trans translate as tongues. Uh, I don't know why he said glossolalia. It sounds more respectable than just saying speaking in tongues because I don't know why. <laughs> Immediately, the entire company was swept to its knees as if by some unseen power amid an outpouring of tongues and sudden joy. And over the next few days, a racially mixed group increased in size and experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. On April the 12th, Seymour himself finally began speaking in tongues. And on the same night, the front porch of the house collapsed, and so they looked for a better place to meet. And that's when they moved into a barn in Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And it really was just an old barn. But from their very first Sunday, it was packed out, and a revival seemed to be taking place. People began to come from all across America and before long from all across the world. They began to flock to Azusa Street. People, pastors, missionaries who were on furlough from many different nations experienced this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's a classic kind of revival type of story. The only similar context to this, and this is another feature of revival, seemed to be Acts chapter 2. And soon newspapers were printing stories about Azusa Street. Get this, three meetings continued every day for three years. Every day, a morning meeting, an afternoon meeting, and an evening meeting. And those meetings, every day for three years, that would kill anybody. Uh, and those, those meetings often kind of flowed into each other in, in a kind of one continuous worship, preaching, testimonies, praying for one another, kind of experience. One journalist wrote, those from poorer economic segments of the community felt welcomed. The freedom of the revival allowed black, whites, Mexicans, Asians, Jews, Catholics, women, men, all to worship together. 
A testimony from the Apostolic Faith newspaper just illustrates how it spread. In Melrose, Kansas, a different part of the country, the power of the Holy Spirit was greatly manifested in the meetings. This was much criticized by the town and the vicinity, so the principal physician, the doctor who was familiar with several different languages, was prevailed upon to go to the meetings in order to denounce the whole thing as a fake. So he gets there. <clears throat> Miss Tuthill, Miss Tuthill, in an unknown language to herself, but known to him, the doctor, as Italian, spoke his full name, telling him things that had happened in his life 20 years ago and on up to the present time until he cried for mercy, fell on his knees seeking God. He found full salvation the next day and is now a believer in the gospel and also in the power of the Holy Ghost. <coughs> this outpouring of the Holy Spirit spread very, very quickly. Within weeks, the first overseas church planters were sent out to Scandinavia, India, and China, and after that into nations in Africa as well. So many missionaries went out from Azusa Street that within two years, they were in 50 different nations. It's amazing. Now, look, it must be said that some, sometimes they went because they were speaking in tongues and someone said, oh, that sounds like Spanish. So off they would go to Spain only to find, to their shock, horror, they weren't actually speaking Spanish at all. They were just speaking in tongues. But in, you know, nevertheless, they stayed and planted churches. And, and, and Christianity, or Pentecostalism, became Spanish in Spain. It became Russian in Russia. It became, you know, it was translatable. It, it was the opposite of Babel. It's Acts chapter two happening again. Now, we may not be Pentecostals as, as such, but it's absolutely well document, documented that since that outpouring in 1906, which followed the Welsh revival, by the way, in 1904, but since that 1906 outpouring, the evangelical church has grown at an astonishing rate globally. There's no question about that. Why? because people are having personal encounters with the God who is there. It's not just, this is what it says and you need to believe it. It's, this is what it says, you need to believe it, and he's here. And people encounter him. That's what makes the difference. Personal experiences of Christ are causing Jericho after Jericho after Jericho to fall. I've got to finish. Let me just end on this or I could carry on forever. It was, <laughs> it, was, it was powerful. That's my third point. This is, this is powerful stuff. Jesus fall, uh, sorry, Jesus, Joshua falls face down and, and he worships. He acknowledges that the Lord is the commander of the situation. He's the commander of his future. He's the commander of his people, of, of his family and of his people. It's a holy moment and and following that surrender the lord says to him at verse 2 of chapter 6 see i have delivered jericho into your hands and he's now nothing's happened yet but he apart from this encounter but he is now convinced if god is for me jump to romans 8 if god is for me who can be against me if, if God is really for us, think about it. Think about it logically. 
you know, follow it through, apply it through. If God is for you, who can be against you? And no wonder he then told the people, verse 16 of chapter 6, we didn't read it, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Jesus is our warrior. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. I just need to stop messing with my phone here. It's done something strange, never mind. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Let's think that through logically. That doesn't mean you go rampaging like some narcissistic, I can do it. No, 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 no. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, so we go into our battles. What are the weapons of our warfare? Kindness, right? Prayer. (laughs) You know, being loving. Sounds weak, but Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth. It's not just for characters in the Bible or for those high moments in church history. You and I can have an encounter with God. So the question is, what's your Jericho? What's the walled up challenge that is in front of you that you, you know, that's real for you? Now, if you're not there, great. If you don't have a massive walled up challenge in front of you, that's good. So don't relax down, keep your armor on, get into the word of God, pray, be filled with the Holy Spirit, fellowship with one another, and preach Christ to non-Christians. But what's your walled up challenge? Could be some sin, could be some need, or some provision, or some unknown circumstantial application. You're not quite sure how this is gonna work out. Is it the conversion of your children? or your parents, work colleagues, friends? What's your Jericho as a church? Obviously, you've got a Jericho as a church. A Jericho that will move you, hopefully, into a broader mission to make a difference in the world. You can receive power from him. Amen? Let's stand together and pray. Yeah, we're going to break bread. Is that what you just said? Yeah. But I, I want to I, I give you just a couple of moments to just take this in. Because this, this business of actually encountering Christ is absolutely key to everything. It's not peripheral. It's not just for the wacky. It's fundamentally part of the Christian faith that you have a genuine relationship with him. And that the surrender of your soul to these, to the, to the, the loving surprises of Jesus, the bridegroom, become really a part of your experience. And a part of what enables you to be buoyant in your faith and enables you to persevere beyond discouragements, that you've got him standing with you, saying, I'm with you. That at the point of confusion or not knowing what next, you hear a voice saying, this is the way, walk in it. It's a dynamic, living, actual relationship with Christ. This is not something strange. This is absolute orthodoxy.
My sheep know me, and they listen to my voice. It is absolutely normal. And Lord, I pray for any here this morning who know, yeah, this is me, I need you, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you just confirm this word to their hearts right now? Do you know, yeah, I, I, I have a Jericho before me. Lord, I need to meet with you. Now, you may not meet him as a warrior commander with a sword. You're more likely to meet him as a shepherd who's saying, I'm responsible for you. You're the sheep in this relationship. I'm the shepherd. I'm the one who will carry the responsibility for your future. I will carry you. I will lead you. Holy Spirit, please apply this word this morning. I pray for a growing hunger for the things of the Holy Spirit, for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And even now as we come to break bread, we know what we are doing is we're saying we receive it, we absorb it, we are taking it in, that you have died for us and that you've risen again from the dead. Just resolve right now, just before we break bread, just resolve right now, Lord, I'm going to seek your face. I'm going to live for you. I'm pouring out my life for you, Lord. There was a point in George Whitfield's life when he, he said, I, I threw myself before the Lord as a, as a blank before him to, to, that he might write anything that he would want to write on my life and on me and on my future. Why don't you do that? Lord, I want to live for you. And it may be even that you're not sure your sins are even forgiven. Well, let me tell you this. Christ came for you and died for you. For your sins. And he rose again from the dead. And you need to turn from sin and in the same way, throw yourself at his feet, surrender. Say, Lord, I'm yours. I want to live for you. Amen.